Welcome to the Future Charlotte podcast, where we talk about the people, trends, and issues shaping our community's future. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. Charlotte's seen rapid growth over the past several decades, but many say that boom has come at the cost of inclusivity and perhaps even a bit of the city's soul. With the loss of many historic buildings and without much of an identifiable design vernacular, aside perhaps from the profusion of five-story apartment buildings, Charlotte's even been accused of looking and feeling kind of bland. And many of the city's residents have been excluded from decision-making about Charlotte's growth over the decades, exemplified most strikingly in the so-called urban renewal program that demolished Black neighborhoods such as Brooklyn in Uptown Charlotte. A new design paradigm could start to change some of that, however. Seku Cook is the director of the Master of Urban Design program at UNC Charlotte and the author of Hip Hop Architecture, a book published in 2021. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So before we really jump in here, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to the field of architecture and design. Yeah, so architecture is something that I wanted to do since I was five years old. Um, I still have no idea why I wanted to be an architect. Uh, I used to like to draw a lot and take things apart to see how they work. Um, and I remember my grandmother telling me about these these people who draw buildings. I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. And since then, I told people I wanted to be an architect, even though I had no idea what architecture was. Um, my sister was a lot smarter. She's five years older than I am. And she didn't decide that she wanted to be an architect till her last year of high school. Um, but then she paved the way for, for, for my early academic career. Um, she did two years at City College in New York and then transferred to Cornell um, and then pretty much single-handedly filled out all my application materials and got me into Cornell as well. So by the time I got to Cornell Architecture, um, I knew I wanted to be an architect, but still had no idea what it was. Um, and uh, the story continues that I'm still kind of figuring out what architecture is to this day. Um, but just with a lot more years and experience. So I know that um, in the book, you resist in a, a number of places, giving a sort of simple cut and dry concrete definition of this is hip hop architecture. Mm -hmm. But for uh, many listeners who probably aren't familiar with the term, I'm going to go ahead and, and just demand that you do that anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what does this term encompass and uh, and how do you define it? Yeah, so it was actually an interview with um, with another reporter back in 2019 in St. Paul, where who pushed me enough to give uh, a, a succinct definition. Um, so, so in the headline for that article was "Hip Hop Architecture is um, Hip Hop Culture in Built Form." So that's the kind of elevator pitch, thirty second way of explaining it. Um, Beyond that, it, for me, it really gets to an understanding of hip hop as more than just a genre of music, but um, a way of being, a whole culture that produced many, many types of artistic environments, um, you know, music, visual arts, performing arts. Um, and in most movements of that type, architecture is a, a logical outcropping. But for some reason, hip hop never had it's 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 um it's connection it's clear connection with architecture architecture didn't fit within the realm of of hip-hop for some reason um 
And then the other aspect of it is that uh, architecture in its, in its most um, relevant form is something that is about people and about culture and reflects our cultural norms, reflects the, the main motivators in society. Um, so if, um, whether you agree or not, if we accept that hip hop is the, the largest and most dominant cultural force that we have in the creative world and across the globe right now, then architecture should be something that is uh, reflecting that, that cultural reality. So this is where I ground much of my research and much of my um, thought process. Um, I'm still quite resistant to describing it and creating a, a package description for all the reasons why um, I, that I describe in the book. And um, I know in the book, you also mention that, you know, there's kind of this, I guess, push and pull both from um, from within the architecture community and from uh, the black community and uh, sort of, I guess, media at large to make you or have you embrace being the face of hip hop architecture. And that's also something that you write about resisting. Yeah. Um, tell me a little about that. Yeah, I think uh, everyone wants things to fit into a nice little package. Um to be easily digestible. Um, and that is uh, a, an incredibly uh, clear um, indicator of colonialist mentality. Um, colonialism likes to name things, right? And um, the most egregious forms of colonialism name things after themselves. Um, but uh, what's really happening there, once you name something, then it can be owned, then it can be co-opted, then it can be bought and sold as a commodity. Um, and hip hop has been resistant to that throughout its entire existence. Um, and I've been resistant to it personally as an independent practitioner and an architect. Um, I, I think um, once you define something, um, you put it in a box, you put it in a cage and it doesn't allow, it's not allowed to be, um, to freely express itself. So uh, I prefer to think about hip hop architecture as this thing that's fluid and constantly changing, constantly redefining itself. And for myself, I'm constantly changing and constantly redefining myself. I change my mind all the time. I change my attitude. I change my beliefs. Um, once we are limited to singular beliefs, then um, we're no longer growing. And there's a great saying that if you're not growing, you're dying. And I think that applies to uh, to cities and um, societies as well as people. Absolutely. So, uh, the uh, the manifesto of your book um, starts with, I'm going to read here a, a short quote, uh, quote, this book is not for you. It is not for architectural academic elites. It is not for those who have gentrified our neighborhoods, overly intellectualized the profession, and ignored all contemporary Black theory within the discipline. You have made architecture a symbol of exclusion, oppression, and domination rather than expression, aspiration, and inspiration. This book is not for conformists, Black, white, or other. End quote. So um, two questions that follow from that. One is um, kind of the natural so who is it for? Um, and I know you get into that in the manifesto, but I'm going to 
ask you to explain on the uh, the show as well. And um, second, part two, uh, kind of when and how did you become aware of and start to really um, study the discriminatory aspects and uh, exclusionary aspects in history of architecture? Was that always um, baked in from the beginning or was that something you became more aware of um, as you grew up and grew into the profession? Yeah, sure. Good questions. Um, so the 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 manifesto is incredibly important and um, obviously something that was thought out for quite a while. Um, I do a lot of things like this where I think it's completely batshit insane and I propose it to someone and then they think it's fantastic and awesome and then they don't say no. So I'll keep pushing the boundaries until people say no to me and then I'll push a little bit more. Um, so yeah, the, the book um, it, it's very explicit that it's not about checking a box um, for um, my academic career. It's not about um, placating people who have been in control of uh, the architectural profession, the discipline, the discourse around architecture for for several decades. It's really about empowering young black and brown kids who didn't know that architecture was something that could be accessible to them or didn't know that they could also be designers or didn't even know that they could actually shape their own environment, that they could be in control of the places they inhabit and where they go. Um, so it's really about that level of empowerment and saying that it's for the people who are going to be following this movement much more closely and less for um, academic inclusion or inclusion in higher education or coming up to some journalistic standards. Um, I later talk about this, you know, not being written in the, the, the standard uh, third person um, that I put myself right into the text. And I use I and we and me quite often in it because um, I wanted to break that edge of the academic um, environment. Um, and, and realistically, that attitude, to answer the second part of your question, um, wasn't really always there, or it was there, but kind of smoldering below the surface. Um, you know, being a, a, a uh, a black student at a predominantly white Ivy League institution um, was not uh, um, a direct easy pass. That's something that you start to learn about your blackness very, very, uh, very readily, very quickly, um, especially coming from a country, Jamaica, where it's 80% black. There's still a striation between the haves and the have-nots, and most people in the elite are white or non-black in one way or another. Um, but coming to a country and in an institution like that, then you start to be much more aware of your place in that society. Um, I think it became much more prescient in my work um, right after, uh, like right around the time when I got the spark to write this manifesto, um, when I started thinking about hip hop architecture and writing about it and and seeing this this um, idea as being powerful enough to bring a whole generation of people who've been excluded from the profession in, um, you know, one of my first 
published written pieces was about Kanye West and um, how he was talking about architecture and how that's a really powerful moment to bring in audiences that may not have been paying attention to architecture um, because now it's something that's cool and hip and people start to understand it, which later on led me back to the idea of hip hop architecture, which was seeded in my first few years um, at Cornell in the early to mid 90s when others like Nate Williams were working on um, projects around hip hop architecture. Um, so uh, for me, th there's a one more point just that really inspired this manifesto, which was when um, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. was arrested in front of his own Cambridge mansion um, because he forgot his keys and tried to get in. And the cops came instead of trying to help uh, or protect and serve, they arrested him trying to get into his whole house. And there was a, an anger that was at the base of that, that, that I was, that was seated within me that I didn't know was there. So that's when all of these things that were burning beneath the surface kind of came out. And that's when the text of this manifesto became super, super clear in my mind. And the first couple of paragraphs were written on a sticky note um, before any other part of the book was ever written. Wow. Well, that is uh, that's one way to start with sticky notes. And um, <laughs> um, I have not written a book myself, but I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so I think one especially resonant theme that you talk about uh, that you just talked about is um, control and control of the built environment. And uh, just looking back on the history of Charlotte, as in most or all um, American cities, I think one problem at the core has been the lack of control that um, Black communities have over where they live. Um, you know, other circumstances can go back to slavery and then um, redlining and other practices that lock people out of home ownership, land ownership, um, urban renewal and highway building that pushed people out of land that they even owned uh, once that came about. Now there's a lot of neighborhoods where um, there's less than 50% home ownership and a lot of renters are being displaced, primarily people of color. So that theme of control of the built environment and do you have control of your own environment, mm -hmm. I think is really resonant um, in Charlotte. On a, I don't know, practical sense, um, is hip hop architecture a tool or a set of tools um, to address some of those issues in mm -hmm. a city like Charlotte? For sure. Um, I think uh, your your premise led me to, to think about some of the work that I've been doing over the last couple of years and I'm working on now um, in ways to take back some of that control. Um, and a lot of that work is deeply inspired by and guided by the theoretical work that I've done around hip-hop architecture that has been slowly but surely um, making its way into my practice and has actually um, is now deeply infused in every project that I do. Um, but there's a, a project that I did for uh, the Museum of Modern Art in the um, uh, for the show called Reconstruction, Architecture and Blackness in America. Um, and this was a project that I did for Syracuse, New around Syracuse, New York 
project title was Weoucha Hip Hop Fabrications and Public Space. Um, and in that project, we were basically talking about the ability to take over the public domain in between housing projects, you know, that in a space that was going to be quickly gentrified. But then if there's this dominant public um, public presence, then uh, the the perception of that space is that it belongs to the people who were already there and who have been there for a long time and that this time they're not going to be removed because they've been moved and removed over and over again. Um, getting back to something that you said, this is the this was the theme of the the ex the entry into the exhibition about black people constantly being placed or displaced and that they've never had true agency over where they could live or how they could live. Um, another project that we're working on right now and we're just in the beginning stages of is in Brevard, North Carolina, just a couple uh, hours west of here, where um, we're looking at giving um, low-income homeowners much more agency in purchasing and designing and shaping the actual projects of what where they're going to live. So we're designing just a few units, but we're we've created a a new funding model that will empower them and allow them to work one on one directly with an architect to to help shape what their space is, even though they're purchasing these these properties for um, what a typical um, qualifying low income homeowner would be able to buy the per the property for. So it's a really new model. It's a model that we're super excited about. Um, and of course, it's still early days. So we're not, we're not um, going to be talking that much about it in detail as yet. And um, what other design elements and practices do you see uh, from your work that you've done in other places that um, might be applicable to Charlotte? Mm -hmm. And, um, I guess just for context, you've been here a little over a year now, right? Um, just like a year and a month. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah. So the so definitely um, projects like the one in Brevard. I think uh, this is a model not just for a singular housing project, but a model that's going to be applicable to applicable to housing environments um, across North Carolina in Charlotte for sure and into um, other neighborhoods across the country. Uh, the story of blackness and housing is, and redlining is a story of America, right? Uh, about how black people get placed and displaced over and over. And whenever a community thrives, they get it gets taken over or gentrified or uh, a massive piece of infrastructure moves through it and displaces people through eminent domain. So uh, this is a model that is looking at repairing a lot of those wounds and um, giving more agency to uh, Black homeowners to, to create long-term wealth. Uh, there is um, another project that we're working on in Washington, D.C. that is um, about dealing with the physical um, remnants of displacement, meaning the buildings that people used to live in that are now are, are so dilapidated or under service that um, the people have to be relocated 
So, um, and then those will be demolished and then something new is going to get built there. But then there's a window of opportunity about, of about three to five years where those buildings themselves can be developed, not developed, but transformed into uh, new publicly accessible uh, public use spaces. Um, and so that project is, is super exciting. And that's, again, another prototype for a model that can be applied to any city that has um, any history of public housing. Uh, the one that's, that's most applicable um, right now is um, we are thinking about uh, and working on the early stages, the conceptual stages of a project along Beatty's Ford corridor, um, thinking about um, uh, a performance arts, a performing arts center that isn't just a singular building um, that's going to be along a newly gentrified strip, but it'll be, um, uh, instead of putting it all in a singular building, everything's going to be dispersed along the corridor in a few different properties. And then that'll allow the, the performing arts center to be much more publicly visible along the corridor. It'll be a place for reflecting the, the specific histories of the West End and um, talk about all the historic locations that used to be there, the history of the performing arts that came out of that, that neighborhood um, and bring much more global awareness to the people of Charlotte of just how important that neighborhood has been to um, the shaping of the city. And it sounds like kind of an idea for, uh, as you talk about in your book, more bottom-up, community-led development uh, rather than kind of, you know, top-down, point mm -hmm. at a spot on a map and say, we're going to put the Performing Arts Center there. It's going to be, you know, X many hundred thousand square feet, and that's that. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking with a historian recently who pointed to that lack of uh, community participation as one of the original sins behind um, Charlotte's, you know, urban renewal programs and all, it was all dictated top down. Do you see that changing now in the broader kind of urban design space? And is it changing as fast as it needs to? Or do you still see a lot of practitioners out there, you know, doing a, you know, maybe more pedestrian friendly or whatever version of mm -hmm. uh, the same, the same old practices? Yeah, I think we're working on a lot of that through the urban design program here at, at UNC Charlotte. Um, and again, this is just my first year. We're just seeding some of these ideas. Uh, the, the new cohort of students coming up this fall will get much more exposure to some of these ideas. Um, and we're still forming relationships with local practitioners and developers and landowners and public advocates to make these, these points much more clear. Um, but I think there's there's quite a lot of um, recognition that we have to um, that the the status quo of how things are done, the way that they're supposed to be done, quote unquote, um, is not working for everyone, and that it may look good and and promote a lot of growth and economic uh, prosperity for the city. But there's always going to be a huge segment of the population that gets left behind because they're not being considered. Uh, so we have to really start questioning every aspect of that of that process. 
um, especially from from planning and uh, and zoning and um, UDOs, um, universal development ordinances. Um, we have to think, change how we think about land use maps. Um, the fact that land use maps are are designed in a boardroom somewhere by a bunch of people who who have a kind of distance um, vantage point from each of the individual neighborhoods that they're designing for is a problematic process. Um, the, the fact that land use maps don't differentiate between what happens inside a building versus what happens outside a building versus what happens on the sidewalk versus what happens on the street is also problematic. So we have to start challenging some of those pieces but the, the, the thing that's really going to get us to a new level of change is not about um, community engagement because community engagement processes have been around for the last 15 to 20 years and they have um, some success, I would argue marginal success, because the community engagement, the typical standard community engagement process starts with an architect or a developer deciding what is going to happen going into a community talking to them and asking them if you had a magic wand what would you create what is your ideal scene and then there's a bunch of sticky notes and post-it boards and a sketching session and then okay thank you now we'll go back to our office and design the thing that you that you say you wanted and they always get bracketed into very basic simple things like we want more fresh air we want more park space. We want things for our children. Um, of course you want all those things. Everyone wants all those things. Um, that level of community engagement doesn't, re doesn't result in the kind of impacts that we can actually have when we do processes that are actually focused on community empowerment, meaning that we're actually giving over and seeding some of the agency of designing and shaping and enacting the how the built environment is going to look to the people who are actually living there. Um, so this is where we're engaging with directly um, local artists, performance and visual artists, local entrepreneurs, talking to community leaders, and having them be the the primary points of contact to be part of our design teams to help shape exactly what's gonna be designed. Um, and of course that requires not just bottom up or top down mentalities, it, it, it requires both and, right? So people who are working at the highest levels have to work with, not for the people who are trying to do things from the grassroots. And again, we come back to uh, that theme of um, control, you know, how much control is a mm -hmm. developer or a landowner or a planner of some type willing to uh, seed mm -hmm. and share. Exactly. And um, yeah, I, I can see uh, I've sat through, I don't want to know how many of those um, community engagement type meetings in my previous life as a newspaper reporter. And <laughs> boy, yeah. Um, <laughs> if for no other reason than, you know, my sanity, I agree that it's a, a process that should be um, changed. Can you give me a little more detail about what a more successful, more inclusive, um, more 
authentic process of engaging and working with and empowering communities um, might look like as a, as opposed to that standard, you know, put your dots on the, on the wall next to um, accessibility or whatever, you know, things most important. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I have to preface this by saying that um, we're working, we start out with a theoretical standpoint that then gets tested into practice and most of these things are early on, but the idea is 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 turning into a reality right now, and it's grabbing roots and it's it's taking uh, quite a bit of shape. So um, it starts with the idea that people are going to have broader agency, or what if they took over more roles in in um, how they shape their their own uh, built environments and their precedents that we reference in Chile and in Ecuador and other parts of the, the world where some types of these, these uh, some parts of this idea have been tested. Um, but then uh, we start to test it at a, at a larger level, for instance, in the project for the Chicago Architecture Biennial last year um, called Grids and Griot, where, um, you know, instead of just designing an installation and plopping it down into a West Side community in Chicago, we actually partner with a local organization that helps at-risk youth um, uh, and teach them um, basic skills around entrepreneurship and um, uh, uh, life skills, let's call them. Um, and so we worked there with Y-Men, um, Young Men's Educational Network, and uh, talk to them about what they're already doing and how can we amplify what they're doing in a different way on a lot that they own adjacent to what's, what, what was already happening. Um, and then we also talk to them about the whole design process. This is the stuff that we're going to be doing. Um, so some of that is, is more typical saying, okay, we're designing this. What, what, what does it look like to you? How is it going to actually work along with what you're already doing? Um, and then the, the last piece of it was having their kids who are part of their program actually participate in the painting of the piece as it was put in. So we had the metal fabricated, we had the, the shipping container uh, purchased and then dropped onto the site, but all the painting of those pieces, I was, in, I was incredibly adamant about having um, the local residents, the kids in this program participate in painting it. Um, so not only did they have fun or get paid 50 bucks a day for the three days of work that they put in, but now that's something that they own, something that they uh, produce themselves. And they have a sense of pride in that. So it's not when they pass by it on the street, it's not just something, oh, I met this really cool artist and or architect and he put this, this installation in our neighborhood. It's like, oh, this is something that I did. This is something that we all made together. And now um, it's going to be better maintained. It's going to be better taken care of. It's going to be better appreciated. And people are going to understand it, its position in the community a lot, a lot more. And then this project that we're doing in Brevard, again, this is the early stages of it, but we're, um, we're directly engaging with the actual homeowners and giving them agency in how um, the selections of, 
of the materials are being made and how the spaces are being designed. And then in DC, we're, we're working directly with the local entrepreneurs and the local artists and performing artists to help shape out what that piece becomes. So any opportunity to involve someone that knows about and lives the actual reality of that place in the shaping of that piece is, is a step in the right direction. Talking to them, hearing them, they feel heard, they feel listened to, but then the, the design process is always a completely disassociated thing because the basic understanding or basic mindset is that these people don't have the expertise or the technical know-how to do all these things. And we are the only ones who can do it. And that kind of um, really deep engagement and community empowerment and involvement, um, not just listening to, um, is that process how you ensure uh, authenticity? And I guess the second part of what I'm trying to ask is, and you kind of address this in the book, but how do you uh, avoid everyone just slapping a, a graffiti decal colorful on a, the parking deck at the mm. new apartment building and, mm. and saying, this is, this is now hip hop architecture. It's, it's, yeah. you know, we hired a graffiti artist to do an um, eight foot mural by the door. Yeah. So the, there, there are multiple levels of engagement with that. So one step is saying, um, here, here we are hiring a graffiti artist. This is a part of our building that we don't really care that much about or might look better with a mural or our property values are going to go up because of this mural because it's a cool hip thing to do. Um, and then we do that. That's one level. The next level of engagement is saying, well, we're going to have this wall and that's going to be our graffiti wall and allow people to do whatever they want to do. Um, a whole nother level of engagement is saying that um, we don't know what this thing is going to be. We have no idea what people are going to come up with. We're going to have a whole section of this or um, we're only going to design it halfway. We're going to design the, the framework, the infrastructure, the things that people, um, that the things that are behind the walls that people are going to need. Uh, but everything else, we're going to leave up to the imagination of the people that are inhabiting that. Um, and some of that might look like something that's very informal or something that's uncoordinated. Um, and people um, really fear the loss of control, especially architects. We tend to be um, control freaks of a certain nature. Um, so it's a hard question to ask. And I've been asking this question long before I've been testing it. But now I'm actually um, engaging in that quite directly. And I'm very invested in putting my own practice and my own money on the line to invest in this idea to make sure I, I, I demonstrate that it's something that I believe in. And yes, that's where authenticity comes from. It's allowing a process to happen uh, by itself without uh, a single authoritarian authorship control of exactly what it's going to look like. Well, as we come to the uh, the end of our time here, there's a final question that I like to uh, to ask folks, um, if I remember, which I have in this case. And uh, even though we were kind of mocking the, if you had a magic wand question at community meetings, 
going to go ahead and ask it. Uh, as a, a relatively new charlatan, um, if you had a magic wand, if you were emperor for a day, uh, whatever it might be, if you could change anything about the city, um, what would you change and why? Uh, yeah, I did make fun of the magic wand question, <laughs> the emperor question. That's okay. You can, uh, <laughs> you can think of it as a king for a day, whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, I'd either completely abdicate my throne and, and give all the land holdings and the, the, the resources and money to the people and organizations that have been working in the community for, for decades or generations trying to get these, these programs off the ground. Uh, that or I invested all into um, the expansion of our light rail system, which is com which is incredibly necessary. Uh, people don't believe in enough, but the 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 growth rate of the city is going to require it um, because we're not going to be able to move around on the roads all the time. The 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 public transportation networks are incredibly important for the long-term growth of a city. And I think people in politics, people are voting on these things and trying to get uh, motions passed and get billions of dollars approved. Um, they're working on timelines that are much shorter than what's necessary to think about. They're working on their election cycle, which is two years or four years, or, or if they're lucky, six years. But these take like decades long vision it's, it might take 10 years to finish the entire project, but we're going to be reaping the benefits for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years um, if it's done in the right way. So um, someone said to me the other day that uh, the, the blue line extension costs $1.7 billion. And I think they were saying it as to say that this is such a big number. And I was like, oh, wow, that's it? Only $1.7 You know, Yankee Stadium cost $4 billion to, to build. And they already had a stadium across the street. <laughs> so um, if, if it's going to cost us a fraction of what it might cost to build a new football arena or a basketball stadium, why the hell not? Let's do it. Why the hell not? Let's do it would be a, a good title for your next book. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Thank well, you. Thank you so much for the time. Um, where can people find out more information um, about you, your work, and uh, and what you're about? One of the one of the great things about having a name as unique as mine is that I'm very Googleable, <laughs> and I have uh, a pretty good uh, um, web footprint. But the most direct route is to go to my website sekukook.com that's s-e-k-o-u-c-o-o-k-e.com uh, we've newly added additional content to that um, not just the projects the architecture projects that we're working on but the exhibitions that that we've done the writings that i've done the um there's an av section with some links to to podcasts and interviews and uh, lectures that i've given um, and then there is a whole section about the firm and our profile. Um, and uh, we're really excited about where it's at right now. And we're looking forward to people coming in and visiting. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And have a great rest of the day. You too. I appreciate it too. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like the show, 
Please rate it, share it with your friends, and keep looking to the future, Charlotte.